If you are new around here or if you're a regular and you're wondering how do we communicate different things in the life of the community, we do it through our weekly update. If you don't get one, would you just write down on the white card to receive one? We've been doing some updating with our Vimeo things. You get to see my mug each week, do a summary. And along the way, um, what you can do is learn about the life of new community. And last week, I talked about our regroup night. If you missed that, you want to check that out theme, cultivating community, is one of our themes for our mission vision, um, part of this church here. And in two weeks' time, we have the State Youth Games. Now, are there any youth here? Give us a hand. The State Youth Games is happening, and uh, there's a couple of thousand uh, youth that descend upon Warrigal to play sport. And we just want you to know that winning is not everything. If you're a youth here today, but we'll be awfully proud of you if you do, okay? And so cheating is not regularly, usually allowed, but if you would like to, if it means the win, then block your ears, everyone else, go for it, okay? Because we want to celebrate your winnings when you come back. Now, that weekend um, is the long weekend, and we designated around here also as being our community weekend because... Cultivating community and relationships is one of our key themes. And so what that means is if you have that weekend to yourself, not to load it all for yourself, but to share it around. So there'll be a couple of activities we're going to have here so people can connect into, maybe morning tea or some lunch and things like that. But if you have a chance, invite your neighbor, invite a friend around, invite a work colleague around a home, share some time together with some other people. Don't just do that weekend alone. Kind of makes sense? Are you ready to go? Glad to have you here this morning. We have been learning about the whole idea of it's complicated. We're going to look in the book of Genesis, chapter 39. If you want to download it now on our Vision, you can do that. And we're going to be looking at this particular theme, it's complicated. Did it just get complicated for Dan? Really complicated, really complicated for Dan. In fact, if you were thinking that it got complicated, Joseph is a whole lot worse than Dan. And Joseph, we've been introduced to last week. He lived around 2000 BC. If you're a historian person, it's probably the Middle Bronze Age. And he grew up with 10 other brothers, at least at that time. And he had four mamas and one papa by the name of Jacob. And things got real complicated around his family. What you've just learned from that days of our lives is that Joseph, he was a dobber. He dobbed on his brothers. Uh, Secondly, he was a dreamer. He had a dream, a kind of a God-infused dream he didn't know at the time, um, where his brothers and his family were bowing down to him. He shared that with them as a naive 17-year-old, and they didn't like him for it. And the last thing we discovered about Joseph was that he was doted on by his father. His father did something that any family member should not have done. Listen up, Nat, okay? He made one boy, one son, one child the most favorite and gave him a coat, a colorful coat, just so wherever he walked, his brothers could look at him and it just drove the, the knife in the stomach. Oh, that's daddy's favorite walking by, and they hated him for it. And as a result of that, things were about to get really complicated. And so what they did one day when Joseph was coming along by himself, they decided to do a a little bit of navigating on their own, and they decided that what they would do is that they would get rid of him once and for all. And so they, they gathered around one another, and they had a little plan. What we want to do is we want to get rid of Joseph once and for all, get him out of our lives, get him out of our way, put him into the back room, and then no one else will have to worry about it anymore. So what they did is they grabbed his cloak, 
They tore it into shreds. They dipped it in animal blood. And then they gave it to their father. Their father recognized it and said, My son, he's been eaten by wild animals. And while he was grieving, we learned that what happened to Joseph was that his brothers sold him to some Midianites that were going down to Egypt. And as the Midianites got down to Egypt, they sold, on-sold Joseph to a captain of the guard by the name of Potiphar. And there he was down south, long, long, long way away from home, where he had been sold into slavery. So not only was his dad grieving, but there was Joseph down in Egypt groaning. And just when we thought life couldn't get any more complicated than what it had become, it did. And there was Joseph, all alone, in a far-off distant land, as a servant in someone else's home. Life just got really hard, right? Last week, if you were with us, and if you just heard these words right now, and you think your life is complicated, (laughs) sometimes the story of Joseph can really be encouraging, yeah? Because some of you went away from last week, and you thought, you know what? I thought my life was complicated. And then I saw Joseph, and I thought, mine's going pretty good. You ever know that? You can compare yourself with someone else. And then some other of you, they were here this morning, you went, you know what? That's just reminded me of what my family life and what my complicated life is all about. So if you connect at any of those levels, this is very much for you. Well, let's see what happened to Joseph from there. From that moment on, things started to get a little bit better for Joseph. Because it said, even in that dark place, far, far away from home, it says this. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, that is that God was with him. Even in that far distant place, in that place of slavery where he had been sold where he was grieving the loss of so many things, it said that God hadn't left him, that God was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything that he did. Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant, that is, Potiphar's attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care every single thing that he owned. Isn't that good? So just from being rather uncomplicated, things got complicated and now uncomplicated, and now things are about to get really, really complicated again. You ready for it? Because Potiphar had put him in charge of everything in his entire home, but the food he ate and one other thing. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said these simple words, come to bed with me, baby. That's there in the Hebrew. (laughs) Come to bed with me. Come to bed with me. Lie with me. Lie with me. And now Joseph is just in a bit of a conundrum, and life has just got a little bit more complicated. Potiphar had said, you can have everything and anything in the house. You're in charge of all of the toys, all of the people, but not one is allowed to, and it's the unspoken word in the text, it's not what he said, there's one thing that he knew that he wasn't supposed to touch or to be part of, and that is Potiphar's wife. Now, some of you guys are here right now and you're thinking, gee, what would I do in that situation if someone's sort of, you know, my master's, my boss at work's wife started to hit on me like this? And you're probably thinking that if she looked like this, (laughs) no problem whatsoever, okay? No. And I really mean no. No means no. No. But if she looked like this, and this is what we think she may have looked more like, yeah? It's there in the Hebrew as well. It's actually not quiet. There she is. She's just lying around. That's what she'd do with her time around the house. She would just crawl around on the floor. 
looking to devour handsome young men because she's saying, Joseph, come here. I don't want to just lie with you. I want to eat you as well. Yeah, that's kind of the, all right, let's move on. <clears throat> but he refused. And at this very moment in Joseph's life, he was challenged to break three invisible barriers that if any one of us is, um, wants to take heed of Joseph's response, he chooses not to cross three invisible barriers in his life. And the first invisible barrier, when, when Mrs. Potiphar comes hunting for prey, he says is this, he, but he refused. He just simply said no. The first invisible barrier, if you like, or boundary, was that he had a moral internal compass and he kind of knew that if he was going to cheat on his, bosses, on his boss through his wife, then that, that wouldn't cut the mustard, that his internal compass just said, this is kind of hitting one of those invisible barriers that I should not pass. So he refused. And then he bumps into the second invisible barrier, the way in which he would say why he said no to Potiphar's wife. With me in charge, he said, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. The second invisible boundary that he would not cross or break, was the one of trust. He said, I understand that my master has put me in charge of all these things because he trusts me. And if I go ahead and lie with you, not only would it be against my invisible moral compass, but it would also be breaking another invisible barrier, the trust that my master has placed in me. So he says, no. And then he goes on, the third invisible barrier he names. No one is greater in this household than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? There's the third invisible barrier. The idea that Joseph had this conviction within himself is that, hey, you might think that the two of us are just here alone all by ourselves, but I want you to know there's a third person watching. And Potiphar's wife probably go, who, who, who is that? Who, who, who? Someone else is watching, and they understand this, and they know this, and I'll be held accountable one day, whether in this life or the next life, will catch up with you and me, and so, no, I think this will be wrong, and this will be a sin against God. Not only the first invisible barrel, my own internal moral compass, not only the, the, the other boundary of trust, then there's the third invisible barrier, which is someone else is watching, and I believe that God will hold me to account. And so Joseph, knowing those three, and that was kind of wired into him, he decided, I will not cross, I will not break that boundary, I will not step over the mark. So much so that he applied what I say is the good law of proximity when it comes to temptation. And you and I know that when temptations come, it can be really hard to resist. So he applies this really practical, wise law of proximity. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he still refused. Lie with me. No, lie with me. No, lie with me. No, to go to bed with her or even be with her. The law of proximity to do with temptation goes something like this. The closer I am to the temptation, the harder it is to say no. Make sense? Let's say you've got some chocolate. Anyone here likes chocolate? You have it hidden through the house. I know you do. For rainy days, but some of you hide the chocolate in all kinds of places. Why? So the other family members can't find it. But there's another reason you hide it. I know you do. It's because you know that your wanton needs fixing and it can break and buckle under the law of proximity. Yeah? So you hide it in places far away, sometimes that you even forget where you put it 
so that it won't tempt you to eat it. Is not this right? Another way of saying that, isn't it true? Yes! So you're just catching up this morning. It's all right. I've been awake since 4 a.m. No. So the whole idea is that he just wanted to say, I want to get this as far away from me as I possibly can. And so he would not even be with her because he knew the law of proximity. Until one day, it says, and it's a setup. Mrs. Potiphar finds herself in a room where she sent all the other attendants away. And Joseph comes in and she says, finally, lie with me. And he says, three invisible barriers, law of proximity. No. And so what she does, she, in her spurned moment of anger, of being refused once again, having doled herself up and made herself look awfully pretty, she, in a fit of rage, she grabs his cloak and she holds onto it and pulls it off him. And he does the only last thing that he has that will save his reputation, if at all, He runs. He runs out of that room. And in that very moment, she screams and she concocts a plan, a story, a falsehood. And she gathers all of the other servants of the house and said, look what this person was going to do to me. This Hebrew slave was making sport of me. And when he made an approach to me and took off his cloak, I screamed and he ran. So what did she do? She waited And waited and waited until her hubby came home. And in that time, with the cloak sitting next to her, not in her hand, she said these words. That Hebrew slave you brought us, isn't it interesting the blame comes in? But it's a setup. That Hebrew slave you brought us, you brought this on me, hubby came to me to, take, to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. A falsehood. Just spreading a lie. Untrue, unfounded, wrong lie. So what would you do if all of a sudden someone came to you with the same kind of story? Well, Potiphar, he summoned Joseph. And in his anger and his fury, he sends Joseph now to rot in jail. Life was complicated and it got a little more complicated, then a little bit uncomplicated, and now it's getting complicated again. If there's ever a time and a moment in Joseph's life where he could hit the untrust button on God, wouldn't you think that would be it? Untrust. Untrust, untrust. That's it. That is it. But not Joseph. You see, what happens when someone spreads a falsehood about yourself, and if it's ever happened to you, you know that there's three or four things that happen in your world. The first thing that you want to do is you want to defend yourself, naturally. You want to put the record straight, don't you? You want to say, this is really what happened, and so you defend yourself. And what you do in defending yourself is you go around and you gather all the kind of information that you can to amass to your side so that you can make a case to other people. And then having made a case to other people, what you do is you go to those people, friends, family, everyone else, uh, work colleagues, and you say to them, 
here's the information I have. I want you to trust me and not trust them. And so in effect, what you end up doing is dividing all of your friendships, dividing your work colleagues, dividing your neighbours, dividing your work colleague. This is happens all the time. See, the insidious thing about a falsehood that's been spread about someone is that it smears your character. And all those people that kind of didn't like you, this is the chance for them to really not like you. It's just the information they're waiting for, yeah? For other people who are a little bit uncertain about you or the ones who love a conspiracy, they're the ones who go, I knew it. I knew there was something about. Very quickly adopt all that information. Whilst the, there's others who go, well, I'm not sure. Maybe we should check the facts. Very few who do. But even then, it's complicated, isn't it? Because no one really knows who's telling the truth because they both seem trustworthy and what's happened and who said what and did what. And yeah, it can get complicated, can't it? And even in those complications, it's hard to sort through who, who's actually telling me the truth. You see, the problem with false accusations is that they spread so widely that uh, a career can be ruined, uh, a reputation can be destroyed just in a single moment. If you don't believe me, this is what happened just a week and a half ago in Knox, around the corner. There was this gentleman who has been appropriately phased out. This was a dad who was in at Knox, and he saw this picture of Darth Vader, the movie, the new one coming out. And he had never taken a selfie before, so he decided to take a selfie of him and Darth Vader and send it to his 16-year-old kids. Did anyone hear about this? Yeah, 16-year-old kid. And, and, and he thought this would be funny because my kids will know that dad's not really good with you know, technology and dad sent me a photo and he's with Darth Vader, right? And, and, but however, there was a mum there and her two little children were standing in front of him and all she saw was a guy doing this. And then he said after he took the selfie, innocently, he said, I'm going to send this to my 16-year-olds. And they came back and told mum and mum went, oh... What a wicked man. He's just, he's a pedophile. And so she ran down to management and told them. She then ran and found him and took a photograph and posted on Facebook. And said, look what this troll of a person was doing. And showing photographs to 16-year-old kids. All the reason he had no idea what was going on until he said I was in a meeting and my phone started to go crazy. He said, I started to answer them and I had friends from interstate calling and saying, hey, have you seen what's happened? What's going on? And he said, I was, I was driving home and I thought someone might have even torched my house. It was that kind of intense, the responses that were coming on Facebook as a result of it. Wow. And this was just an innocent accusation. They cleared it all up. She's issued her apology and... The reputation still, I guess, it's up to you to decide. You see, accusations cut really deep in the life of communities and individuals and people. And if there was one person who could have hit the untrust button at that time in his life, it could have been Joseph. Rotting there in jail, complicated, even more complicated, asking the question, can God use any of this to bring me good or us good? Can any good come out of this? In fact, the, the, the passage that we looked at last week, I mentioned to you that over this family, Joseph's grandfather had been made a promise by God that one day through you, Abraham, I will actually put the world to right. 
And that through you, and even though he didn't know this quite at the time, that one of your ancestors, through the mighty nation that you will be, to be a blessing to the world, to actually be like a window that reflects me to the world, one person will come. And this person will be a rescuer. And like a Messiah figure, this person, if you like, will make peace between God and humankind and put people's hearts right before God. And in that very, very, very moment, I could have imagined that that Joseph there in jail would have thought this is the last thing that God could ever do is bring good out of this. And yet what does he do? It seems as though he doesn't defend himself, even though putting the record right is fine. And he allows his character to speak for itself. It might not have taken days or weeks or months, but he allows his character to speak for itself. Because when people like you and I are in those kinds of situations, the one powerful thing that often happens more than anything else is that we dwell so much on the unfairness and the injustice of it is that we become sometimes as bitter and angry and twisted just as the person who made the false accusation. Is not that right? And so Joseph in that mind, in that place, seems to be able to entrust himself into a God's hands who sees all and knows all and judges all rightly. That's hard, isn't it? Isn't that super hard? Because I know when I'm falsely accused, I want someone to stand up and to defend me and put the record straight for everyone so that my reputation, so that I can be vindicated by all. And yet there's sometimes in our own lives where those things will never be cleared up. The truth will never be said. And all that's left is a character that's left to shine through and rebuild. Life just got complicated for Joseph, didn't it? And in that moment, you or I in that particular place would have been very able to ask, God, are you punishing me? No. God, did I do something wrong? No. Did Joseph do something wrong? No. Is God trying to just get at Joseph because he loves playing with human beings? No. But yet does he allow complications to enter into our lives in which he invites us to trust? Yes. Because even though we can't see the consequences and the outworkings of it, it seems that in Joseph's life he understood on you that God was still present. God was still present. And he sees all, and he knows all, and one day, everything will be known. In fact, there's a passage in the Bible, if you jump ahead about 2,000 years, and there was another man who came from this same family tree. And he hung on a cross, and it says of him that when they hurled their insults at him and he did not retaliate, when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, it says of Jesus that he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You see, when you or I are in situations like that and someone spread something, said something, misunderstanding or deliberate, we want to defend ourselves so much that we can become just like the person we said. 
who said those and leveled those words. And what we want more than anything else is a judge who will come and judge justly. But the, re- the recognition and the realization that I have is that as soon as I understand that I want a God who actually sticks up for me when I'm pointing the finger at someone else, I realize that someone else might be saying of me to God the same thing. A person who I let down, a person who I failed, a person who I hurt. And so in the same way, the God that I trust will judge justly if I'm honest with myself and we are. I wonder, as I'm pointing a finger at someone else, if there mightn't be some fingers pointing back right at me. That's why I love this next bit. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for what is right. By his wounds, it says of Jesus, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseers of your souls. You see, what I think the Bible is trying to get at here is that there's these two things. There is a God and he deals justly and he sees all. And there's, and there's times in which you want God to defend you and he invites you to just entrust yourself to him even though you don't see a way ahead. Just like Nat and Jen were talking about this morning. Now you might say it's easy for them, they got another baby. But in the midst of it, you heard the words. Calling out and reaching out even when... And you want someone who will judge and seal and knows all justly. But at the same time, I know when I'm honest with myself, I also want someone who will bear my sins, who will forgive me when I've done wrong, who will take away the things that I've done and deal with me in a way that distributes mercy and forgiveness and life and his love. And God seems to offer both. I wonder if you're here this morning. And as you hear the story of Joseph, you go, you know what? That's me. And your character is being tested in every way imaginable. And God might be saying to you this morning, would you trust me? Maybe you're here this morning and just checking out God and you know what the word is for that kind of phrase I just used there and you call it blind faith. (laughs) You see, you know what? They're those Christians again. They're just throwing out their faith to God. He's not really there and they're just blindly trusting nobody really and there's... That's just what happens in life. It gets complicated. But I think if you asked Joseph, he'd probably say it like this. You know what? It's not blind faith. And I can only see this sometimes in retrospect. This is a working faith. Because through life's complications, as I call out on God and I trust myself to Him, I find that He has not left me or abandoned me. That He's still with me. And I want Him to work even in the most complicated situations to bring good. As I see it, often people describe Christianity as just being a kind of religion. You have to do things in order to please God, but the only problem with that is that you never know when you've done enough good. Isn't this true? You never know when you've done enough good to square things up with God. The way I see it is that Christianity at the heart of it is about a relationship. God made people like you and I to be in relationship with others and ultimately in relationship with Him. And when we get that right... When that heart is put right with God, it's as though a whole new world opens up. And that can happen so easily when someone comes to know Jesus. 
the one who judges justly, who stood and lay and, and was nailed to a cross, spat upon, beaten, bruised, and he said he did it for folk like you and I, so that we might know the justice of a God. We also might experience the mercy and forgiveness that washes us clean too. Band are going to come up in a moment. Next, I do want to finish off with this. Are you here this morning? And as you hear the words of Jesus, as you see the life of Joseph, that you realize, I've got some rebuilding to do. I'm one of those persons, just like Mrs. Potiphar, who's kind of spread a falsehood, passed on an untruth, kind of just mingled the information a little bit just to cast dispersions on someone else. And you maybe didn't mean it entirely, but you know you've spread a falsehood about someone else. Today in this place, if you want to do right with God and by God, then what I would invite you to do, what I'd invite you to do is decide this week to do some rebuilding. Go back to that relationship. Go back to that workspace. Decide to put it right. Ask God for his courage. Maybe you're here this morning. And you've been Mrs. Potiphar. I want you to know, God can pick us up and even in our darkest places. He seems to have an amazing knack for it. Because his love is so great and rich. That if you turn to him, he'll forgive you. We have a word for that in the Bible. It's called repenting. It's when someone says, I was heading that way and it's wrong. And I want to head this way and do it right with God's help. And so you do an about face. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been the Mrs. Potter and you need, uh, Mrs. Potiphar and you need to do some of that. God will hear you. Maybe you've been the one who's falsely accused. And you have so dwelt on that that it has distorted your character and it eats you up. God would speak to you this morning in this place and he would say, would you trust me? Would you entrust yourself to me for me to look after your character, for me to look after that situation? Would you trust me again? I'm going to ask you to do this one extra thing. Would you forgive yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. It's not your fault, nothing to blame, nothing you did wrong. Would you forgive? Because that's what Jesus did. And it's the only way to life. Well, maybe here this morning, you just need to entrust yourself in all of your complications of your world and your life into the hands of a God and a creator who loves you and made you. And though you don't understand everything, just like Joseph, you would entrust God, I trust you. Come into this situation. Come into this situation. I give it to you.